on this episode of Verbal Spirit Radio. What is completely under your control is awakening. Will you live a life where you are just completely enmeshed in local reality and thinking about what you wear and what you eat and whether people like you or not and what's been posted on on social media? You know, that's all you're focused on. If you, that's all all you're 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 plugged into is local reality. You're missing the boat. And so you want to spend part of your day, not you can't, not a, we can't do spend a whole day that way, but we want to spend part of our day prioritizing plugging into non-local reality, and that's where joy is found. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, in humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, best-selling author Dawson Church joins me to discuss his most recent publication, Bliss Brain, the neuroscience of remodeling your brain for resilience, creativity, and joy. Among many other topics, Dawson talks about overcoming the brain's negativity bias, reverse engineering enlightenment, and how the evolution of the human brain can transform society. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Dawson Church is a best-selling science writer and the author of three award-winning books. The Genie in Your Genes broke new ground by showing that gene expression is influenced by emotions. Mind to Matter is based on hundreds of studies showing that our brains play a key role in constructing the reality around us. In Bliss Brain, he demonstrates that as we cultivate peak states, our brains rapidly rewire themselves for happiness. Church has been involved in over 100 scientific studies published in peer-reviewed journals, many as principal investigator. He has collaborated with researchers from prestigious institutions including Harvard Medical School, California Pacific Medical Center, Emory, Columbia, and Duke. He has edited several special issues for top-ranked journals such as Frontiers in Psychology. He is the founder of the Veteran Stress Solution, which has offered free PTSD treatments to over 22,000 veterans. After retiring from active business management, Dawson has continued to teach and inspire through his presentations, podcasts, books, and blog posts. Dawson, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Nick, so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And your energy is just amazing. And I'm like, what is this man doing? So <laughs> I'm just doing what we should all be doing. I'm I'm watching my mindset. I'm meditating every day. I'm connecting with something greater than myself every day. I'm reducing my stress every way I can. And, you know, Nick, when you do all those things, they all converge. I mean, we're never doing them all equally. I'm you know, usually not exercising enough and sometimes not taking enough enough free time. But but you, you average it out and you focus on these parts of self. Your life just improves dramatically. So just doing the stuff we all know we should do makes a difference. Yeah. Well, it's difficult, though, sometimes. I, you know, I... I will be completely honest. My meditation practice is not <laughs> as consistent as it should be. And I think that that may be the case for a lot of us. And so one of the questions I have is, how do we start doing this? How do how, how does someone start this journey and start focusing on the brain and their mind? Well, it isn't that easy because we're pulling against the weight of over 4 billion years of evolution. And our species have been evolving for millions of years uh, since there's been life on Earth. And what your body and brain have cared about all the way along the evolutionary journey of mammals and reptiles before them is survival. And to survive, you have to be so alert. Like I use the analogy in my book, Bliss Brain, about mindfulness. And we all know we should be mindful. And for example, I try and eat mindfully. I ate my breakfast this morning and I focused on eating mindfully. But I watch the birds as a feeder outside my office window and they alight on the bird feeder. They peck at the seed for a moment. They look up, they look to the left, they look to the right, they look down, they peck at the seed again. There's nothing mindful about their eating. Watch a mm -hmm. dog just wolfing down its food. Nothing mindful there. Why are these animals, why are 
other creatures not living mindfully. And in the case of my birds outside my window, it's the fact that there's a hawk that circles above and every once in a while it dives down. And if that bird isn't alert, that bird gets eaten. There's a cat down below the bird feeder that stalks up every once in a while and jumps up and tries to catch a bird, successful about one time in 10. But still, that bird needs to be really alert to those potential threats. And so our brains evolved and our minds grew in this evolutionary environment in which we had to pay complete attention to threats. And so even when we're asleep, parts of our brain are scanning the environment for threats. And so when you sit down and try and meditate, suddenly there's not a lot else going on. You close your eyes and you've cut off that flow of visual information. And now your mind's threat assessment machinery is still turned on full and it's just going crazy looking for the next bad thing, the next bad thought, the next problem. And it, it, it's, it's a really difficult, it's called the brain's negativity bias. It's a really hard thing to learn to control. And the, the main way we learn to do it is two, two ways. And again, science is so handy because we have these wonderful meditation traditions coming from thousands of years ago. And then we have MRIs. And I'm <laughs> such a fan of filtering all those ancient techniques through through science and saying what really works. And a few things really, really work. And we can tell this when we park people in an MRI, or hook them up to an EEG. And one of those things that helps meditation is to make it physical. Uh, trying to think your way into meditating or into an elevated state is rarely successful. The thinking mind is overwhelmed and overwritten by the emotional need to find something wrong in the environment and react to it, Those that stress response. So thinking our way into it is very rarely successful. What we have to do is use our body. So I have people breathe and focus on the breath, relax their muscles, tune to their body over and over and over and over again. And after a while, the mind realizes, oh, the body is not in any danger because it's breathing deeply and it's relaxing muscles. And so that's one thing we can do. And that's one simple way to overcome the mind's negativity bias. But again, it takes practice. You have to fire those neurons over and over and over again. But we've shown in studies that if you fire them for a month, they start to wire together and we can actually measure that wiring in only 30 days. So stick with it for 30 days and you're likely to develop a habit. Yeah. So persistence is key. Persistence is key. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I have found it personally quite helpful. I suffer from anxiety, but my anxiety levels have dropped substantially when I do meditate. And even if I don't, I'll do chanting and that I find that helps quite a bit. And I have a niece who has a pretty bad anxiety panic disorder, and she reached out to me recently. And one of the things I did after our phone conversation is I sent her a YouTube video of your eco meditation. Oh, said, Let's okay. try with this. And I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about the eco meditation, because one of the questions I had is why eco? Yeah, well, epigenetic, because it has been shown in studies to shift hormones and genes inside the body, coherent because it puts us into heart coherence. And that simple rhythm I use in, in eco-meditation of six second in-breaths and six second out-breaths automatically puts you into heart coherence. And you can take a lot of expensive training and buy a bunch of devices and, and use those to get there, or just breathe six seconds in, six seconds out, you will be in heart coherence. And the reason I developed eco-meditation was a few reasons. One was I struggled for, at that point, I've been struggling for over 30 years to meditate. I've been doing it, but you know, with moderate success. And doing it badly is not going to make much of an impression, much of a, a change in your neural firing and wiring patterns. Do it effectively, and it starts to change them in a month. So I, I looked at all the research and it's it's just really clear that mindfulness, if it's done effectively, can work that EFT acupressure stimulation tapping, that works, self-hypnosis works. Again, certain methods from self-hypnosis, neurofeedback, biofeedback has its methods. And I, I one day I just had this insight. I thought the insight was, 
imagine if I did all of those together. I did a little mindfulness exercise. I tapped. I used a biofeedback, near feedback technique. I breathed in that rhythm, heart coherence. I did a little bit of self-hypnosis. I, I stacked those things on top of each other. And the day I did that, the first time using these physiological science-based cues to my body, boom, I was there. I then took it to a conference a few months later, did it with hundreds of people, and boom, the whole room was there. And at that point, I realized it was great. I put it up on the web for free. My web boss told me five years later, we're getting thousands of hits on this, this page every day. So I thought, well, we better do a clinical trial to see if it really works. <laughs> and yeah. the clinical trial was amazing. It showed that people had dramatic shifts in, again, that 30-day time window. We then raised a ton of money. We had to raise like a six-figure amount of money to do an MRI study, elaborate randomized controlled trial, published in one of the top neuroscience journals in the world eventually. But we compared it to a mindful breathing uh, second control condition. We compared eco-meditation to that, and we found that in 30 days, it was changing the structure, the anatomy, and physiology of the brain. It was literally shutting down a part of the brain right over here called the midprefrontal cortex. It's the root of rumination and worry. Worry, stress, anxiety, rumination, reflection about all the bad stuff, that, 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 that negativity bias of, of, of the mind. It's rooted in the midprefrontal cortex. And we found in 30 days, those people had a big drop in activity in the midprefrontal cortex. And another part of their brain called the insula just lit up brightly. And that's the part that has to do with gratitude and happiness and joy and compassion, all of these positive emotions. So down-regulation of the part of the brain that is obsessively worried about the bad stuff and an up-regulation of the part of the brain that is focused on the good stuff. And it happened, Nick, in 30 days. We were absolutely flabbergasted to see that change, structural changes in the brain. Because normally, like with Tibetan monks, they need 10,000 hours. And we were seeing in, in people who'd never meditated before in, in 30 days. And that's the beauty of science. Science is just, eco-meditation is just science. And it's using science to get you there quickly, rather than going away and taking vows and being in a monastery for 10,000 hours and the traditional route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who has time to spend 20 years sweeping around the ashram, right? <laughs> I've been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, I find it's really important work. And I have been telling students for years now, the power of meditation. And I think, though, that there is Sometimes a resistance in the sense that I think, one, we live in a trauma-filled world. Yes. But also there are major traumas that happen in our lives. And you begin Bliss Brain by discussing a personal trauma. And it was fascinating that I think it was very early on, I think you know, like one or two days after losing your home due to a one of the California wildfires. I think this was what, in 2017, something like yes. that, that you told your wife, you're like, we have to sit down and meditate. And yeah, I think I really, I really, people... the real emergency wasn't the fire. The real emergency was we, we'd been thrown so off balance. We weren't meditating. We meditated. And that that very that same moment, Nick, within a few minutes, we dropped back into our bodies. We felt resourceful. And this is this is like 48 hours after the fire. We began making jokes about all the crap we had that had burned up. We didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things I liked because you noted that uh, there was this cognitive shift that occurred yeah. where you began listing the blessings of the fire. Yeah. And within 48 hours. Now, it's not like we, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, the Pollyanna story and we just right. began to meditate and everything was fine. I mean, we, I, I had to get PTSD treatment. So did my wife. Even a year later, a really uh, talented psychologist friend was doing an anniversary session with us one year after on the day mm -hmm. to help us clear the residue. So it's not like, you know, magically you do EFT acupressure tapping and you right. meditate and all your trauma goes away. 
but you you certainly are able to release a lot of it very very quickly and then you you build this this magical quality called resilience and resilience means that when bad stuff happens like the fire like a terrible divorce like a loved one dies like you get a diagnosis of a terminal disease i mean there are all kinds of shocks we get throughout our lives and we, they're unpredictable very often who knows what the economy will do next and who knows when you might be diagnosed with something but when you have those shocks in your your life if you're resilient then you have the 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 elasticity to bounce back and that's really the message here is that not that we have perfect lives or there's some sort of magical panacea here there isn't but when you're firing and wiring those near ones for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, a year, two years. Now you've built up a lot of bulk. We see, for example, in one of the uh, case histories in my book, Mind to Matter, about a, 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 a TV producer in Australia named Graham Phillips. He began this process of meditation. He was very skeptical about it. But before he began to meditate the very first time, he had a lab at a respected university called Monash University analyze his brain exhaustively, like a whole day of tests, MRI scans for the volume of each part of the brain, and then he began to meditate. And he found after just two or three weeks, he was more calm, he was kinder, he was more compassionate, less impatient. He went back in two months, and they found that parts of his brain had grown two, three four percent in just two months but a part of the brain that has to do with regulating your emotions regulating frustration fear anxiety overwhelm anger all kinds of stress that little sliver of brain tissue that helps regulate emotions that had grown by about 23 percent in other words it had got, gone up it had grown by almost a quarter there just that firing had produced a lot of wiring inside the brain now you have 20 plus percent more neural tissue to create resilience so when all the bad stuff of life happens inevitably you now have the physical it's like having a physical stamina to lift something to push something away to deal with things with physical strength you now have the brain strength the neurological strength hardwired into your neural network it's not like a thought it's not like imaginary it's not like a, a mindset it's a structure it's like muscle fibers in your arms making you big and muscular you have now the resilience muscle fibers in your in your neural network are big and strong and so you have the fire you have the upset but you then have resilience to deal with it so that's what i really really recommend don't wait till you have the the huge tragedy and the trauma build resilience starting today yeah you know one of the things that came to mind while you were speaking is i think that a lot of people automatically assume well the brain can't grow but what came to my mind was the images of the Buddha, because the Buddha's always got that dome, you know, at the top of his head. And I think a lot of people mistake that for like, you know, the what they call the man bun. But what I learned was that, no, 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 that's extra brain. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, and the way the brain grows is very interesting. So a skull doesn't grow, a skull's yeah. the same size. But the way the brain grows is by folding in and, out, in and around itself. So you see all those folds in the brain. Right. You look at a baby's brain, a newborn brain, no folds. It's very, very flat. As we get older, those, those crinkles allow us to add tons more tissue to the neocortex, the newest part of the brain. So the brain literally does grow when we do this. Right. Yeah. Neuroplasticity, <laughs> right? That's That's kind of the key to all of this. And, you know, it's interesting as well I, I wanted to ask and this is something that i ask quite a bit and think about a lot and i wanted to ask you because it's often seen that the point of meditation is to achieve enlightenment and i want to ask you what is that <laughs> oh you've you've really got really, really simple questions lined up for you today nick oh yeah <laughs> <What is> enlightenment <laughs> yeah well well you know i my background's philosophy and religious studies so i have to ask these questions right because i found it interesting you i think you said that it was a what was the it's a formula is what you wrote in bliss brain bliss brain excuse me 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the way I think of enlightenment is is the Buddha, is Jesus, is these you know, Han in modern times, Gandhi. There are these awakened masters, and they have got this permanent connection to the infinite. And there there are numbers of them today. In fact, there's a whole branch of science now studying them. And I'm in touch with with various researchers. Like I'm in touch with one researcher called Andrew Newberg who wrote a book called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And um, we're literally studying the characteristics of these people who've had these enlightenment experiences. But um, very few people are permanently enlightened. And in fact, if you meet someone who tells you he or she is enlightened, I would recommend you run the opposite direction because um, the, the, the true teacher is not going to claim enlightenment or any special powers. But there nevertheless are people who reach that point where they're so plugged in, they, they never go anywhere else. And, and there are those people in the world today. There are those, those people throughout history and they're shiny examples to us. But what I focus on much more practically is everyday awakening. So enlightenment is being plugged in 24-7. Awakening is what you do when you meditate every day. And now you spend 15 or 20 or 30 or 60 minutes plugged in. Mm -hmm. So now in my book, Mind to Matter, I call it local mind, which is all the stuff happening around you, just your regular everyday reality. And then there's non-local mind. And there's a huge amount of scientific evidence for the existence of and the reality of information fields in the cosmos. And we are, our brains aren't so much generating reality as they are like transceivers of reality, which we then project out around us as what we think of as being local reality. But a lot of it's coming from non-local reality. And so the, the meditator for a while breathes, she calms herself, and then she plugs into the all that is. Like a Rumi, you hear Rumi, mm -hmm. poetry of Rumi, or, or St. Teresa of Avila, or Hildegard of Bingen, St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, these people are having extraordinary experiences, Carlos Castaneda. And so they're having these remarkable experiences of ecstatic union with the all that is. And that's what the meditator does after a while. You're having that for a while every day, and that's awakening. What happens is after a time, in fact, that, that study of eco-meditation showed that in 30 days, it began to produce changes on the outside. Mm -hmm. And those people were more compassionate. They were more attuned to other people. They were more considerate. They were happier. All kinds of shifts start to happen in your local reality if you're prioritizing for that hour every morning, plugging into non-local mind. And so the thing to focus on is not enlightenment. I mean, if it happens to you, that's just a, a, a wonderful gift. It's it's just the, the grace of the universe. But what is completely under your control is awakening. Will you live a life where you are just completely enmeshed in local reality and thinking about what you wear and what you eat and whether people like you or not, and what's been posted on on social media, you know that's all you're focused on. If you, that's all all you're 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 plugged into is local reality, you're missing the boat. And so you want to spend part of your day. Not you can't, not a, we can't do all, spend a whole day that way, but we want to spend part of our day prioritizing plugging into non-local reality. And that's where joy is found. Ramana Maharshi is a great Indian saint of the early 20th century and regarded as one of the, the real uh, founders of the non-dualism movement. And non-dualism is, again, where you lose your sense of self-identity in something larger than yourself. And he said that there are many ways to that place, many paths to the infinite. But he says the common characteristic of all of them is joy. That's why my book is called Bliss Brain, because I found myself after the fire. I mean, there I was, I'd lost all my possessions. In the next year, I had a huge business crash. We lost all our retirement savings, which when you're in your 60s is not a pleasant thing to have happen. I lost my health. I had to have a couple of operations. I had a lot of turmoil in the year after the fire. And I'd meditate and I would be feeling this absolute bliss. And I had no worry at all that we'd be fine in the long term because we had that, that bliss brain. So what you develop after a while is a sense of everything's okay. Sure, the world may look as though it's in chaos. My life may look as though it's in chaos. I have this fundamental sense of well-being. I have a resilience that nothing can shake. So the common characteristic here is this just 
overflowing joy. And you wake up every morning, maybe you're being interviewed by Nick Mather, maybe <laughs> you're <laughs> maybe you're changing your kid's diaper, maybe you're solving a problem at work, whatever you're doing, you just have the sense of well-being and that joy overflows. We find people who are spending time like this every day for weeks, months, years on end, they start to be just radiantly blissful. You meet them and you just get inspired by how happy they are. So that's the kind of happiness that we have this neural circuitry. We have, I'm sure we have that stress circuitry in our brains that, that has us looking for threats. We also have the, the, the neural circuitry in my book, This Brain. I trace it. I call it the enlightenment network. And we have these specific brain regions that light up on MRI scans and we train you to light them up on a daily basis. After a while, you become that radiantly happy person. And even when your house burns down and you, you lose all your money, nothing can take away your joy. Wonderful. I have a couple of questions based on everything you just said. But before that, I just wanted to make a comment. I wanted to thank you uh, because you said something that I say all the time. And that was that if you meet someone who claims to be enlightened, run the other way. <laughs> um, and one of my favorite quotes from Thoreau's Walden is, I have never quite met a man who was quite awake. If I had, how could I look him in the face? And and I like that. But in connection to what you were just saying, it doesn't have to be someone claiming, oh, yes, I'm enlightened. But you can actually tell by the joy that just exudes off of them. You know, that seems to me the true marker right there. Absolutely. I was in a supermarket in a little town called Gualala, California, a few weeks mm -hmm. ago. And I was talking to the guy who was making the barbecue outside. Just you know, That's his job, just making barbecue food outside every day. And radiant joy, complete happiness. He just treated every customer with such compassion. He smiled. He was just a radiantly joyful human being. You'll find these people all over the place. When you become one of them, the world seems as though it's full of them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there are those enlightened masters. I also have to say that before I began working in, in research, I had a whole other career for 20 years in book publishing. And I met a lot of the great spiritual teachers and transformational leaders of our time. And I became friends with them. I got to know them. And they're all struggling with stuff, Nick. I mean, they're all, you know, these people, you look at, you know, you look at an Eckhart Tolle and you look at a Matt Kahn and you look at a Gangaji and a Chidvalasananda, you look at all these, these, these Mother Teresa and then you discover that Mother Teresa is having this crisis of her faith, you know, that she's, right. she's doubting the very existence of God and whether the Catholic Church is just a, a bunch of hogwash. So you find these, the, these elevated beings, when you get to know them, they're struggling just like everyone else. And so that, that makes you realize there are saints behind the checkout stand. There are saints mm. pumping your gas. There are saints teaching in classrooms, doing cleaning your house. There are all these amazing human beings in the world. And so sometimes there, there are a few of them who we put on a pedestal. Those people on the pedestal, they are dealing with life's stuff just the way you and I are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's something I tell myself all the time. And I think it's really important to develop that, that we all suffer, to recognize we're all suffering, we're all in this together. But one of the things I was going to ask you towards the end, but I'm going to ask you now, is that part of my background in scholarship was Aristotle and virtues. And for Aristotle, one of the main purposes, the main reason, the goal to be virtuous is to achieve what he called eudaimonia, which used to be translated as flourishing, or excuse me, happiness. Now people translate it as flourishing. I kind of like to go to the very roots and translate it as a good spirit and, or a good spiritedness, right? And what I noticed is, and this came up when I was reading Bliss Brain, is that you talked about not states of consciousness, but traits of consciousness. And I started making this connection between sort of the virtues and that, because for Aristotle, it's all about the traits, developing these character traits. And I notice on your background, it is full of virtues, forgiveness, <laughs> graciousness, honesty, idealism, humility, humility, joyfulness, modesty. 
And so it seems to me that part of tapping into this bliss brain is allows us to just become better people. It does allow us to become better people and that effect starts to spread out from us. And so as we study, and again, this serious scholarly study now of people in that state of eudaimonia, and one of the terms that's used for if there are different terms used in different studies, one of them is fundamental well-being. Fundamental mm -hmm. well-being is one that a dear friend of mine, Jeffrey Martin, uses to describe people who've awakened and have had a long, persistent wake awakening experience. They have this fundamental sense of well-being. And sure, there are wars, there are insurrections, there's all kinds of craziness in different spaces, financially, politically, socially, and they have this basic sense of fundamental well-being. And another term for it too, we use sometimes ex extraordinary happiness, not just feeling okay, not just being in a good mood, but you at that point, when you hit that, that state, you fired those neurons enough to wire them. And firing them is great because it's a feeling and it's a state. So I'm in this feeling state of well-being. I feel great because I am firing those neurons. But if you fire them enough, you wire them. Now, it's not merely a passing state. It's a permanent trait. And now, it's not a feeling of happiness you have sometimes. It's the reality that you are a fundamentally happy person. You have a fundamental characteristic. It's part of your personality that no one can take away from you. And so that's when you move into that state of fundamental well-being. And we find that when people hit that space of having built up enough neural tissue in these circuits, they never leave. They very, very rarely do we find anybody who goes backwards. They may have fluctuations in mood, but they are in the state of fundamental well-being all the time. And that's what makes them resilient. So philosophers have known this for a long time. The beauty of today, and I, I just, I'm so passionate about science because now we measure it and we measure it and then we measure how to get you there. So the old model, I talk about this in Bliss Brain, the old model was great. And the old model was go to a monastery, take vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, sit at the feet of a master for 10 years, meditate for 10,000 hours over those 10 years. And then maybe you're an initiate, maybe you spend another 10 years as, as an initiate, another 10,000 hours, maybe up to 20 years, you're able to move into these experiences. Now, with the aid of these advanced techniques, gene chips, where we can use a, a, a gene chip and see what's going on with your gene expression, with assays that measure your hormones and neurotransmitters, with these amazing devices like advanced MRIs and EEGs, we see what's going on with those people who've taken that long path to enlightenment, we measure them, and then we analyze what is the active ingredient. Like, you know, marijuana, there are all these molecules in marijuana, over 100,000 molecules in the marijuana plant. One of them, THC, is the active ingredient in, in, in that euphoric state it produces. We find the molecule, we find what the active ingredient is, and then we put it in, in, uh, in a dose and give it to you. Just that one thing. So what we're doing now in neuroscience is we're saying, like with eco-meditation, just do these five things that take five minutes and the majority of people click in and, and they're there. And those tools weren't available to Plato and Aristotle and the founders of Ayurveda and all these great, other great traditions. They stumbled there by trial and error over thousands of years. Now we have science and we've got to the point where we can put people into an online program or a virtual class and in a weekend, they're having a full-fledged awakening experience. They then do the firing, do the wiring. And within a month, we see the changes in their brains. Within a year, their whole personality structure changes as they hit that level of resilience and fundamental well-being. So that's, that's where we are today. And that's the exciting shift that's producing in human flourishing. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And I, I loved in the book that you referred to this as uh, reverse engineering enlightenment. Uh, which is what you just described. And I think that's perfect. Absolutely perfect. And, you know, it also occurred to me, you know, we are facing so many challenges in the world. And I was talking with some students about this. And it's like, how do we begin 
this process of changing things. And I always make the connection that what we see outside of us is a reflection of what's going on inside of us. And so we have to fix that. And you end Bliss Brain by noting that when we insert this, this is in a direct quote here, into emergent systems like the Earth's industry or climate or weaponized AI or income inequality, that's when we disrupt the system. Yes, absolutely. And so we're going to see a lot of change, a lot of disruption over the next few years because human beings are changing, human brains are changing, human societies are changing. And what is happening is very interesting. So you see many people profoundly disturbed over the state of the world, state of society and the economy. And they, they look at all these negative things going on. They point to them and they get wrapped up in that turmoil. And so other people, though, we see moving into flourishing, especially meditators, they're moving into fundamental well-being. And so I looked at this really carefully through the uh, through the the data in in the last year because it, it was so apparent that many people were getting there, there's more anxiety according to the world health organization since COVID since 2020 that uh rates of anxiety and depression have dramatically increased the american psychiatric association says that referrals to psychotherapists have doubled since COVID. people are more anxious more depressed than they were before and that's a trend worldwide what is less talked about, but which shows up in the statistics, is that that is true for a percentage of people, and there's a large minority of people, actually about 20%, who are flourishing like people have never flourished before. Their health is better, their health span is longer, their lifespan is much longer. Optimists live on average 10 years longer than pessimists. So they have much longer lifespans. Of those years of life, the healthy years are many more than in people who are consumed by, by negative mood. And it's like society is bifurcating. There are people living in this world and they just can see all the hell in the world and they're in hell themselves. There are people living in this world, exactly the same world, and they are in heaven. So there's this big split happening with about 20% of people really flourishing. And then about 20% of people, like for example, in the latest Gallup survey of world happiness, they, they have people rate their quality of life on a scale of zero through 10. Like 10 is you're flourishing. Zero is my life is so bad, it cannot possibly get any worse, okay? 21% of adults in India rate their lives at a zero. Mm. My life cannot get worse. In Mexico, the number is high, almost as high as India. India, China, it's high. In many other countries, it's it's high at at that zero level. So there are a lot of people all over the world. Again, I'm just using the, the generalization of 20% of the population is really getting wrapped around the axle of misery. 20% of, of, of the population is meditating and doing stress reduction and taking care of themselves. They're getting wrapped around the axle of ecstasy. And the other balance of people, the 60%, is somewhere in the middle. And you may as well go and be one of the top 20% and, and you know, do the, do the stuff because it's easy, it's quick. You do it half an hour a day. Bingo, your brain starts to change. You're more resilient. And so we live in a very strikingly different world. Same world, but some people are just absolutely loving it and having the, the best time that evolution's ever given us. The bottom 20% are suffering. It's tragic that they feel their lives are, are so deprived. And again, the, the challenge is to reach them with the message, hey, it's possible to change. Neuroscience shows us we can change. The solutions are right here. Please use them and shift your reality. Yeah, and I think this is one of the reasons why I was so impressed with your book, not just all the scientific data, but that personal experience, because often, and I've been guilty of this myself, is saying, you know, try telling someone who lives in, you know, the global South who makes $300 a world that all they have to do is make their minds better, you know, meditate a little bit and everything will be fine. 
And you, at one point in the book, brought up or quoted Viktor Frankl. And he's a great counter to that because he shows, you know, the change of attitude, the change of mind in one of the worst places you can possibly imagine. Yeah. You know, so it's not something of privilege. It's something that we can all do. And it seems to me that if you get to that bliss brain, those states of ecstasis, that that's when the answers to a lot of the world's problems are going to start revealing themselves. Absolutely. The number of nonprofits has exploded over the last 50 years. The solutions to things like problems like climate change are multiplying. We have the ability to really put in place radical shifts in terms of climate solutions, racial inequality, economic inequality. There are so many solutions out there, and there are a lot of smart, motivated people working on those far more than have ever been tackling global problems in previous centuries. And so, yeah, we are on the cusp, I think, of huge, again, disruption, social change, but positive change. And mm -hmm. will it be disruptive? Yes. But will it be net positive? Absolutely. You just can't have a huge number of people meditating. Like right now, the number of meditators has gone up enormously from about 1% in developed countries in 1980. The number of meditators right now in developed countries is at 20%. In other words, 20 times the number of people are meditating today in developed countries than there were in 1980. And with that, they're producing these brain changes. They're feeling more peaceful. They're feeling more resourceful. They're feeling more creative. That's the other thing we find is a massive explosion in creativity. We also have just finished a study which measures productivity. We wanted to see you know, these people are having fabulous non-local experiences. They're blissing up. They're into bliss brain every morning meditation. And you know the old uh, the old argument was well that means your head's in the clouds, you're no earthly use to anybody. That's what my my parents would, would say yeah. when they ran into meditation. It's like, oh, you know, his head's in the clouds, there's no earthly use to anybody. So you're losing your touch with, with reality and you aren't a good, uh, good at coping with what's happening around you right now. We found in the study, it's the first study, as far as I'm aware, like this. We looked at their productivity. We found their productivity goes up, not mm -hmm. down. In fact, in the first 30 days, we found their productivity rose by 20%, not, not 5% or 10%, 20% rise in productivity in 30 days. That's like getting an extra day of your week. I mean, that's a remarkable increase. In six months, it was up even further to 26%. Mm -hmm. So these people who are having their heads in the clouds, who are spending time in non-local reality, when they get back to local reality, they're better parents, they're better at their jobs, they're more creative at the arts or whatever it is they're doing in the outside world, they're more innovative, they're better with money, they have a better ability to handle all the stuff of local reality after they have immersed themselves in non-local reality. So that's that's the beauty of it. We are, we are on track to produce a much better world in the coming gener generations. And, and a lot of the big data is pointing in that direction. Yeah, it seems that a main theme in your work here is that humans are, in a sense, in control of our own evolution, that we can evolve ourselves into a better place by meditation. It's astonishing. No species on Earth has ever been in charge of its own meditation, its own evolution. Your dog, your cat, a lizard, a snake, a deer, none of them can, they're just biologically programmed by their environment and what's going on around them and their, their genes. You can sit in meditation for only 30 days and produce a measurable anatomical change in your brain. It's like, you know, think about working out at the gym. You go to the gym and start working out. Maybe you're lifting weights. Maybe you're you're doing Pilates or yoga stretches. You're doing all, all kinds of, of, of things. And your body changes in 30 days, 60 days after a year. Your body looks quite different if you are focused on going to the gym and doing a fitness program. We're changing our bodies. Your dog and your cat and that deer and that tiger doesn't do that. And we can do the same thing with our minds our minds remodel themselves 
faster than our, our muscle fibers do. And so we're changing the literal structure of our brains. And I know you're going to ask me this question in time, so I'll just <laughs> answer right now. But I'm working on another book about the future, and I'm starting to look at where this is going to take us. Because you know, here, if you have a billion people changing their structure of their brains, what does it do in terms of our evolutionary trajectory? I'm getting chills as I think about this, Nick. And we can't predict that, but we can certainly predict that it'll be different to the way it would if we did not have a billion people changing their brains. And the overall trend of that those brain changes, again, is more resilient, more creative, more productive and more compassionate. So we have a billion people becoming more compassionate, becoming more productive, becoming kinder, becoming more grateful, becoming nicer to others, becoming happier. What effect does that have on our social, political, economic, ecological problems? It's gonna have a positive effect. And so our the fact that we can drive our own evolution of our own brains is gonna produce unprecedented changes in global society and in on the planet in a way in which we can't really predict, but overall is bound to be positive. Mm, wonderful. I, I I appreciate the optimism there because sometimes, you know, it's very <laughs> difficult to be optimistic in this world. And it does seem like we're facing a choice right now. Humanity's facing a choice. And, you know, and I think that with the work that you're doing, there is, you know, it's the individual, you know, that we can manifest very positive changes in our lives by changing or being mindful of how we think. We don't have to keep telling ourselves these negative stories. We can tell ourselves better stories. And it is a feedback, right? It's a feedback that, you know, as we do this, our lives improve and we become better people. And then that expresses itself outwardly to others. It does. And we find that trajectory. So initially, you have that sense of fundamental well-being, extraordinary happiness. Now, one of the interesting things here is the magnitude of the effect. And I've been struggling to, because as a science writer, you have to read science and you have to explain mm -hmm. it to the average person. And so, um, but here's one analogy that I've been using. So we measure in these neuroscience studies, we measure an increase in the brain waves of happiness and gratitude. We measure a sevenfold increase in those brain waves in people who are in the state from baseline to entering these elevated states. They their brain waves that are characteristic of these positive states go up seven X, sevenfold. And so one analogy I've been using is the the local basketball star here is Steph Curry, who plays with the, the, the local basketball team here in the Bay Area where I live part-time. And he can jump so high, he can jump a yard off the mm -hmm. ground. I mean, it's an amazing athletic feat to watch him literally jump a yard off the ground. So that's what you can do. You can learn to jump a yard off the ground. Imagine if I told you that Steph Curry could jump seven yards off the ground jump mm -hmm. over a house. You wouldn't believe me. It wouldn't be credible to you. That's what we're struggling with here in science. The magnitude of the effects is so astonishing. You can get so much happier. You're not just getting 7% happier. You're getting 700% happier. You don't even have any idea where that is. It's like, it's like talking about going to the moon. But that's what neuroscience shows happens in your brain. I, mean, I, I used to be so unhappy that literally... People can stand me around me. When I was a teenager, people would avoid me. They they would almost cross the street to avoid walking past me because I was such a, a pit of gloom. So we can go from being depressed and suicidal and, and miserable to being not just okay, but in absolute ecstasy as our baseline setting. Are we always there? No. Do things disappoint us and upset us? Absolutely. But we have resilience. We have this baseline of joy that nobody can shake, even if you have adverse circumstances. So, yeah, we're, we have the we have this ability to be extraordinarily happy. That's what science shows. My uh, challenge as a science writer is to convince people, hey, you you aren't just looking at getting a bit happier by doing these practices. <clears throat> You're looking at getting multiples, orders of magnitude happier than you are today. 
Yeah, I think that you make all of this very accessible in your writing. I wanted to be clear about that, that I think anyone can pick up the books and read it and understand it. Because a lot of times, like you said, the science is not easy to read. So it's very accessible. And, you know, one of the last things I'll just comment on is, again, as you were speaking, that the ideas of Tehard de Chardin came to mind in the sense of the noosphere. And I remember when the internet kind of came about, everyone's like, aha, there it is. But now I'm thinking, well, maybe it wasn't because, you know, the internet sometimes can be a cesspool, of <laughs> a cesspool, but that maybe that newosphere is this collective higher consciousness of joy. You know, one of the cool things that research shows, and I talk about this in my books as well, is that there are these large scale effects and we find that people who are meditating a lot have a much higher experience, incidence of experience of what are called anomalous states. Mm -hmm. They'll have <clears throat> precognitive dreams where they'll dream about something that hasn't happened yet. They'll have a lot of synchronicities in, in their, their lives. I was teaching at Omega Institute a few weeks ago, and a student came up and said to me, I remember you from 30 years ago when we were both studying with a psychologist, we were studying Gestalt therapy, we're studying with a psychologist called Brad Blanton. And she said, you know, have you, ha, what's, what happened to him? I, I thought he may have died. I, I, so I said, I don't know. I, you know, I haven't heard, I haven't talked to him. I haven't even thought about him for 20 years. So I had this little conversation with her about how we liked his work. We both studied gestalt therapy with him in the 1990s. I walked back to my room after that class, popped open my laptop to check my emails and being at the top of it, is an email from Brad Blanton. So, I mean, these things happen <clears throat> to people who are meditators a lot with greater frequency. And so they are tuned into fields and we're now starting to um, measure these fields. There's something called the Global Coherence Project, which is mm -hmm. measuring these fields at planetary scale. But there are these large scale fields and they're, they're bigger than the planet. They're at least as big as the solar system and they're probably universe sized fields. But you start to find that a, a lot more about your life starts to flow and you have these field effects. So you tr attract people who are joyful to you. As Teot de Chardin talked about the noosphere or the psychosphere, you find those waves of joy, those energies of joy, and you're just like moving in this field of joy. You're attentive to what's going on as far as, as joy goes. Does that mean you're dissociating from the bad stuff or denying it or spiritual bypassing? Absolutely not. You're donating to charity. You're protesting stuff that shouldn't be happening in the world. You are taking a stand. You are doing all the things a good citizen should. And you are attuned to these fields of bliss. And you meet people. You interact with people. And you share this heart connection with them. And it doesn't take a long time to do this. You enter that noosphere field. You're part of these streams of consciousness. Magically, things start happening all around you as you're attuned to other people who are attuned to these fields. And your life, your outer life changes in the next few weeks and months. And we see people's lives changing dramatically as they're participating in these amazing information fields. Albert Einstein said every great scientific discovery is made in these altered states. He said they're, they're, that's how they, they happen. And so you find all of these people who are attuned to those having these extraordinary experiences, which they then find reflected in the world around them as well. Wonderful. You give me hope. <laughs> you give me hope. So thank you for that. I, I know that we are near the end here, unfortunately, but let me ask you, you've already mentioned a book that you're working on, but I was curious, what else do you have coming up? What I am doing now may seem a little unusual, <laughs> but um, after being involved with people like Andrew Newberg, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, Jeffrey Martin, who has helped define these states of fundamental well-being, uh, being deep in, in neuroscience in this community for, for a long time. I'm getting really interested in some of the ancient writings, especially things like the Tao Te Ching and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And 
my my wife and I used to travel a lot. I used to teach in Europe for a month and we would travel all over the world and we did, did a lot of workshops and, and events. Then COVID came, we couldn't travel as much. It all went on to Zoom or teleconferencing. And so not much traveling anymore, but what happens when I sit down in meditation and meditate is I travel. And I found myself traveling to the furthest reaches of consciousness. And I'm going to places described, for example, in the Yoga Sutras. And the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali describes 10 different kinds of what he calls samadhi. And if you go to them and you explore nirvikalpa samadhi, sabija samadhi, uh, nirvija samadhi, you go and explore these different states. It's like travel, except far more exciting because you're traveling in consciousness to remarkable spiritual states. Now, you have to do this with some infrastructure because you get so far out there, Nick, that at times you you cannot um, function in the normal world. So you have to have things set up enough. Then, for example, you may want to be at a retreat center before you go there or go spend a week camping in the wilderness before you go into some of these states. But but the places we're traveling now are, are places not like Germany and France and Bali and South Africa and Peru, the places we're traveling to are, are different states of Samadhi. And I'm I'm just incredibly struck by the fact that 2000 years ago, even longer ago, these ancient sages were describing these states, how to get to them, and we can get to them today. And they're exquisite. They're just, they're, they're, they, they, put a trip to Bali to, it pales in comparison. And so we can learn to navigate these phases of consciousness. Now I'm not advocating everybody else try and do this as well. I'm just saying you can do it if you want to, but you certainly just meditate for that 30 minutes every day, use science-based methods and you're gonna hit basic happiness. So what I want for everyone to have is basic happiness. But after you have that for a few years, you may want to start exploring the states in the Tao Te Ching, the states in the Yoga Sutras, and the states that these sages talk about. They're they're just exquisite, and they 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 fill you with such a sense of love and joy and bliss that it's impossible to describe it to anyone who hasn't been there. So that's that's really what I want to do more of in the next mm -hmm. while is the traveling to all these very different distant places in consciousness. Yeah, I think that the ancient texts have lots to teach us. And, you know, in the Western world, Western philosophy, they're just now starting to ask these questions about consciousness. And so I hope that Western philosophy starts taking some of these texts like the Yoga Sutras seriously, because at that point, there's no stopping humanity. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. So the last question for you is where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Go to DawsonChurch.com and look at all of the live workshops that are going on. I'm doing live, physically live workshops at places like <clears throat> the Omega Institute. I'm doing a ton of virtual workshops so people don't have to travel. And so if what what is a good entry point is if you go to the website, Dawson, just my name, GIFT, G-I-F-T, DawsonGIFT.com, you can download a eco-meditation track for free and also the instructions for EFT acupressure tapping. Mm -hmm. So those two things, stress reduction and meditation, DawsonGift.com will, will get you going. And then for more explanation, exploration, take a class, go work with a certified practitioner, get a teacher. We have advanced classes like one called the Short Path to Oneness. And every year in January, we invite people to do a year-long program where they're exploring all of these states with a mentor, a guide, and a community. So there are lots of uh, simple, inexpensive, and free courses, and there are elaborate mentored courses like A Short Path to Oneness. There are many things you can do, but start at DawsonGift.com, get the meditation, and just do it every day. That's all I ask, that one thing. Yeah. Download the free meditation, do it every day, and in a month, your brain will change, and your life will start to change as well. 
All right. Well, you've inspired me. I will start being way more persistent. I will be more persistent <laughs> in my meditation practice. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You really are an inspiration and you just exude that happiness and joy. And thank you for the work. It's much needed work. Oh, it's such a pleasure to live in love, live in joy this way. Thank you for sharing it with your community. We're all in this together. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. Okay. Wonderful. And that's a wrap on episode 117 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. Now, before anything else, I'd like to take this moment to thank John Azizi for his generous donation to the podcast. Your support is truly appreciated, John. It is with support like yours that I can continue with the podcast, so thank you. I am incredibly grateful and humbled by your generosity. If anyone else would like to be like John, be like John, and support me in my mission of exploring spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's relationship to a living earth, you too can make a one-time donation via PayPal, or you can sign up for my Patreon. Perks for patrons include early access to episodes, ad-free episodes, shout-outs to members, a members-only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, and a monthly book club where we explore books discussed on the podcast, spiritual and philosophical classics, and books related to the cocktail apocalypse. You can find the links for both the PayPal and Patreon in the show notes or video description. They are also available on the Rebel Spirit Radio webpage at rebelspiritradio.com. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it on social media. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. Help me grow my audience. So if you feel moved by the Rebel Spirit, and you know, I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to, or watching, Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your Rebel Spirit.